And I think it's important for us to recognize what the limits are for the healthcare industry or what what they were trying to do. They were trying to manage costs in, in an environment where healthcare costs were rapidly increasing year over year in an unsustainable way with the tools that they had. Not trying to justify what they're doing, but just at least trying to recognize the environment the health insurance companies were in. Hey, this is Justin Harvey, your host of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. My wife is an anesthesia resident, and I'm a financial planner, and I work with anesthesia and pain doctors as my clients. This podcast is designed to help the anesthesia community be informed about their careers, their finances, and more by taking important questions straight to the experts. Thanks for tuning in. This week, I do an in-person interview with Dr. Michael Ashburn at the University of Pennsylvania. We talk about how the opioid crisis impacts the clinical practice of pain physicians, about the importance of collaboration between the academic medicine, legislative, and enforcement communities, and about how policy changes over time have contributed to the current opioid situation in our country. If you've ever wondered how you as a practitioner can get involved beyond your clinical work to help combat the opioid epidemic, you won't want to miss this episode. Hey, it's Justin Harvey here. I'm pleased to introduce to you our guest this week, Dr. Michael Ashburn. Michael is a professor of anesthesiology and critical care at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, as well as the director of Penn Pain Medicine Center and a senior fellow at the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania. Michael's list of accomplishments and expertise is quite immense, and I think that in trying to summarize it, I'm not even going to do it justice, but briefly... He was a Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellow with Senator Orrin Hatch back in the 90s. He's worked with the DEA, the FBI, the DOJ, and the FDA, to name a few, on policies addressing opioid addiction and other issues. It's hard to imagine a person more qualified to discuss the current landscape of policy around opioid addiction and how it impacts the clinical practice of anesthesiologists and pain physicians. In addition, my wife Sarah has worked with him in the pain clinic and said that he's an absolutely delightful person as well. So, Dr. Michael Ashburn, thank you for joining us today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm happy to be here. So, Michael, you've done a lot of work on many sides of this issue of what we're now calling the opioid crisis, from policy involvement to providing advice for enforcement and oversight agencies to being a clinical practitioner as well. So, tell us a little bit about the current scope of your work as it exists today in that space. I'm a professor in the Department of Anesthesiology, and I direct the Pain Medicine Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, my work is divided between providing direct patient care uh, to patients. Uh, about 40% of my time is just me seeing patients. I spend a fair amount of time supervising residents and fellows and providing patient care and uh, collaboration with residents and fellows. And then I have some time blocked out for my administrative issues as well as academic pursuits. Great. And I'm curious, in the context of supervising residents, working with them clinically, but also, I'm sure, trying to uh, you know, give them some career perspective as to the, the track that they're going to be proceeding upon, do you ever talk to them about the current environment with regards to you know, legislation and practice and enforcement with regards to opioids and, uh, and how that is going to potentially impact their career or future clinical flexibility, perhaps? Uh, we certainly do have those discussions. Uh, not in any structured way. For the most part, when an anesthesia resident spends time with a pain specialist during their core rotation, we get a grand total of two months of their time. And our focus at that time is to give them exposure to the clinical practice of pain. And so frequently, we're focused on the clinical aspects of what we do. 
Now, it doesn't take very long in clinical practice to be able to glide over to a policy discussion that's precipitated by a particular scenario in the clinic. One may be a patient who presents who's on high doses of opioids, who, who our recommendation is, is that they be tapered, or a patient who presents who meets the diagnostic criteria of an opioid use disorder, and then the resident participates and observes a discussion between me and the patient with regard to the need for treatment for opioid use disorder and the availability or lack thereof of treatment options for those individuals. And, and so subsequent to the patient interaction, we can talk about the policy. Makes sense. Um, so you've obviously been very involved in helping to liaise between the medical community and uh, this legislative and regulatory community for quite a long time. Uh, when did you first become interested in that type of dynamic? Uh, I probably got interested in policy in the early to mid-90s. Mm -hmm. uh, at that time, I was a, a mid-level at the University of Utah, and President Clinton was the president. And the uh, first episode on health care reform was very much underway. And there was a rapid change in the environment of health care from a fee-for-service environment to one of what was the first iteration of managed care, uh, which included considerable consolidation within the healthcare field and strict limits on who would pay for what. Mm. And at that time, there was significant concern over the impact on how we would be able to provide pain care and anesthesia care and surgical services. At that time, I recognized that I would be in a much better position as an academician to understand the policy issues, and I went back and got a master's in public health uh, while I continued to work for the University of Utah. I was coming on to my seven or eighth year of faculty and was due a sabbatical and chose to do a Robert Wood Johnson policy, or Robert Wood Johnson uh, Health Policy Fellowship in Washington, D.C. Uh, I prepared for it, uh, met with a whole as many people as I could possibly meet with in the Utah area, worked hard at making sure I submitted an application that I thought was as robust as I could be, mm -hmm. and then went to Washington, D.C. and interviewed for the position, ultimately was uh, awarded one of the slots. And the, that was a very, obviously very intentional on my part. Uh, I initially in, anticipated going into a health policy-related role when I returned, but actually that did not occur for a variety of different reasons. And uh, but ultimately, the fellowship and the experiences that I gained during the fellowship has impacted my uh, academic career, and it certainly has impacted my my participation, help, my willingness and confidence in participating in health policy dialogue going forward. Makes sense. So I, I'd love to know, what does a day in the life of a Robert Wood Johnson fellow look like in D.C.? Uh, well, it's changed. The program has changed fundamentally now, but it still exists. Uh, but... This is a fellowship that, uh, at the time I went through, was run through the Institute of Medicine, which, of course, now has a new name. Uh, but it's a very prestigious program, and the first three months is full-time education. Uh, they have a wonderful uh, process at that time where there's only six fellows a year, and we would go and meet with the who's who of health, health policy. We would meet with a variety of different Senate offices, a variety of different offices you know, at the House. We'd go to the White House, we went to the FDA, we went to 
the Surgeon General's office, we met with the DOD, we met with all many of the think tanks that exist in Washington are interested in public health. And we met for an hour and a half, usually with one person, like we met with the Secretary of Health at the time, uh, we met with the uh, Secretary of HHS at the time, and spent an hour and a half listening to what they had to say and asking questions. And that was a wonderful opportunity to understand what people were thinking on both sides of an issue, uh, get a very clear understanding of how the process of development of policy worked and understanding it. After three months, the fellows then would apply for an interview to get a position on somebody's staff. And in my case, I, I took a position uh, with the Judiciary Committee. The chair of the Judiciary Committee at the time was Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah. I did that very intentionally because I intended to go back to the University of Utah and I, intended, I felt like having that connection at the Washington level would be very synergistic when I returned to Utah. And at the time, there was a fair amount of legislative work that was going on within the judiciary. Senator Hatch also had a very long history of work on health-related issues and was also a member of the Health Committee, Health Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Even though he was chair of judiciary, he was also on the Health Committee. And so I had an opportunity to work on a number of different bills, both within judiciary and within Health Committee related to health policy. Great. Uh, so something you alluded to earlier, and I also recently read an article where you quoted in the Philly Mag a couple of years ago talking about um, opioid policy and how it's evolved over time, um, was that in the 90s and with President Clinton, there was a concern at that time when the paradigm was shifting to more of a managed care model that there was a concern that people who needed help with pain treatment weren't going to be able to get it, potentially. And so the, the access to opioids um, was... the. the the thinking at that time was to make sure that people can get what they need rather than trying to, the paradigm being like, let's protect them from the harmful effects primarily. Uh, and obviously in the last 20 years, we've seen that shift. So can you talk a little bit about kind of how that landscape existed in the 90s and how it's potentially, if, if in your opinion it has, if it's contributed to where we find ourselves today? Well, one of the challenges that we ran into in the 90s was that uh, the fragmentation, the, the, the impact of managed care and the consolidation of the market prevented uh, programs that were considered to be interdisciplinary pain programs from mm. existing. Mm. When I started my pain career, we actually had an inpatient suite to, within which we could admit patients who had complex pain problems and they would stay with us for three to four weeks. Now that might be overkill, but the concept of an integrated program they had uh, pain psychologist, physical and occupational therapists that were dedicated to taking care of people who had complex pain problems, and pain specialists and rehab physicians, all working on patients with their focus on allowing them to get the maximum pain relief, but also to allow them to improve physical functioning and focus on returning to work, allowed us to provide that service. Then managed care programs carved out psychological health and psychiatric mm -hmm. care. And so payment for the pain psychology services were eliminated. Mm -hmm. Then physical therapy and occupational services was carved out to a particular vendor. So we devolved from integrated interdisciplinary care to physician care. And in addition to that, 
there are well-known differences in reimbursement that contribute to problems. And that goes towards the cognitive behavioral programs such as evaluation management services, mm -hmm. meeting a patient, talking to them, providing them with medications, prescribing physical therapy, and other non-interventional modalities is not valued by society as much as us doing an injection. And so there's a known and perhaps unconscious bias by physicians to do what generates more revenue for them. And so many physicians will focus on what they can do well and what they get reimbursed well by society to do. And so all of that led to focus on interventions. And many pain physicians left interventional care and moved towards, or left interdisciplinary care and moved towards doing injections. Interesting. And you see, in your opinion, or I guess in your experience, the the catalytic moment where there was this integrated system that sounds like you were saying was handling the, the pain treatment more holistically and perhaps more effectively. The With the introduction of managed care, there was, I, I'm imagining, an incentive, a, a direct desire by the insurance companies to say, we can't really verify whether or not the social worker at the holistic pain center is, is really earning what we're paying them. And therefore, we're going to not pay for that social worker anymore or whatever the behavioral health component of that is. And therefore, it sounds like you're sort of being dictated to by an insurance company, potentially what, how to best treat pain, which previously you had been doing holistically, and now there's more of a, you had been pushed towards a more interventional clinical model? Well, it's, it's nice to, I mean, that, that is the argument that was frequently done, but I don't know that the insurance companies were being, we'd like to clarify what they're saying is, you're dictating what I can do. Mm -hmm. In fact, what they were doing in their mind was denying payment for certain types of things or mandating that that care be provided by specific providers rather than, and, and, and I think it's important for us to recognize what the limits are of the healthcare industry or what, what they were trying to do. They were trying to uh, manage costs in, in an environment where healthcare costs were rapidly increasing year over year in an unsustainable way with the tools that they had. Not trying to justify what they're doing, but just at least trying to recognize the environment the health insurance companies were in. Yeah. At the same time, we had a fundamental misalignment of how physicians and other providers were reimbursed. Mm -hmm. So these were the times where we were just initially talking about the concept of adding value. What value is some measure of outcomes with cost and trying to figure out in an innovative way how we can how we can pay for doing the right thing rather than just for doing something and in this time of transition the efforts of controlling cost ran up against some of us who felt that we were trying to add value in this integrated process now when I returned from Robert Wood Johnson Fellowship in Utah, we actually were successful at negotiating global payment rates for our program in Utah. And so we went to different health insurance companies. We, we provided them with data on what we were doing and why we believed that it added value. And we uh, uh, negotiated specific contracts where they would pay a global fee for comprehensive care. And that allowed that individual program in that small market to survive and thrive for a number of years. Uh, 
we were, have not been able to replicate that here in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. by the way, but in Utah, we were able to do that. Hmm. Excellent. Uh, and thanks for the additional clarity and perspective there. Um, so as that, that paradigm shift was happening in the healthcare industry at large, um, do, you, do you see that dynamic, the shift to managed care and the uh, you know, difference in reimbursement and what, hosp what insur insurers will pay for, how has that contributed to you know where where we find ourselves today? Which there was this article in the New York Times last year you may remember calling Kensington one of the neighborhoods here in Philly the Walmart of heroin, and uh, Philly is pretty renowned for you know the the opioid crisis here as being sort of Exhibit A of a lot of the hardship that uh, our nation is experiencing. I think that's an excellent question. I think that like everything in life, I think the underpinnings of what happened with regard to uh, the opioid epidemic that we've been experiencing for the last decade or so is multifactorial and not mm -hmm. easy to understand. And I think that there are probably many things that came to bear to cause the crisis, and, and not just one thing. Uh, I think your point is well taken, is that the devolution, the loss of integrated pain programs, caused us to devolve to performing procedures and prescribing medications, which are the two modalities that physicians are comfortable at, and medications include chronic opioids. And so there was already an uptick on prescribing opioids. Now in the pain field, the, the reasons for that I think are also multifactorial. First of all, uh, we started to learn more on how to properly treat people with advanced cancer. And many pain specialists who took care of non-cancer were also the go-to people within their institution on how to take care of complex cancer patients. And so we were learning at the same time how to properly administer extended release medications in combination with short-acting medications properly treat cancer pain. Then we made a terrible mistake. And the mistake was we translated our experience to cancer to non-cancer. We assumed that if those principles worked for somebody who was dying of cancer, then they might be applicable to people who had pain from other sources. In hindsight, that was fundamentally wrong. And many people moved from an era where we were not offering opioids for the treatment of chronic non-cancer pain to starting to offer it, and then really starting to offer it. Combined with that shift and that thought process, was, of course, aggressive marketing by the pharmaceutical industry to get us to do it even more. But I think it's disingenuous for physicians to completely blame marketing because that decreases agency by, or, or dismisses agency by the individual physicians. At the end of the day, irregardless of the marketing, it's individual physicians who are making the decision to prescribe or not prescribe. We clearly are influenced by what the pharmaceutical industry puts at us. But in the 90s, uh, up into the early 2000s, their concern or the understanding of the influences of marketing on physician practice was naively missing. As we became more aware of that, institutions including the University of Utah and very much including the University of Pennsylvania, implemented pretty strong guardrails with regard to our interactions with industry. Uh, some institutions that did that more aggressively and earlier and they benefited from that and others have done it late. And so, and then 
on the other hand, there are other, in addition to that, there are other thought leaders, other policy believe, uh, makers that believe that there are other broader issues that have contributed significantly to the opioid crisis. And that includes income disparity, uh, the recession uh, that occurred in, two, in, the, in 2006 to 2008, uh, the disenfranchisement of uh, poor and low middle class folks, the loss of the middle class, and the spiraling out of a, uh, essentially into despair of a large group of individuals that that contributed to opioid use, uh, inability to get work and find meaning in their lives, and all of those things combined have contributed to the crisis that we have. So I think there's multiple different contributors to this, and I think ultimately the fix is not going to be a medical fix only, but I think that the ultimate fix to despair and these other issues related to the human condition of these folks who've been disenfranchised will include addressing income inequality and the huge distribution of wealth where the top 0.1% and the top 1% uh, are, are contain a significant amount of wealth and the amount of individuals who don't have opportunities to lead a meaningful life in America is growing. Interesting. That makes perfect sense, and I'm, I'm sort of chuckling now at my own naivety in saying, you know, one factor, one outcome. Obviously, a big complex problem like the opioid epidemic is going to be multifactorial, as you mentioned. So, in your opinion, I'm curious, uh, does, the, does the current um, legislative efforts that we're seeing appropriately acknowledge the multifactorial nature of this problem, or do you, do you think it's maybe more uh, targeted and not acknowledging, and perhaps only looking at, you know, the medical community and, you know, opioid prescribers specifically rather than the broad scope of all the inputs that have caused this problem? Well, obviously, I think it's the latter. On the same token, much of the legislation that occurred over the last couple of years have been remarkable in making significant contributions. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the amount of funding that the, that society does towards addressing people who have addiction disorders, uh, particularly opioid use disorder, are quite small, have been quite small. Mm. The, the amount of resources have been brought to bear to properly screen, offer treatment, engage in treatment, uh, meaningful treatment for addiction disorders has been relatively modest. Physicians have significant knowledge gaps with regard to how to properly diagnose and treat substance disorders. We have significant limitations on our understanding of how to diagnose and treat pain, mm -hmm. and we still have knowledge gaps with regard to how to properly use opioids to treat pain. Um, there's been good data with regard to the concept of opioid stewardship, uh, which is a term that's stolen from antibiotic stewardship, where physicians have a responsibility to be good stewards on how they prescribe opioids to treat pain. Uh, we don't do a good job at uh, instructing patients on how to properly store opioids and we don't do a good enough job on how to instructing them on the importance of getting rid of the opioids that they have left over mm -hmm. so they don't become available for non-medical use by others others within their uh, their circle of friends and family now the things that broader things with regard to 
addressing poverty, addressing despair, uh, are much bigger and more difficult right. and, quite frankly, also politically contentious in this right. environment. Right. Uh, you know, the, you mentioned Kensington is a big area. A large number of the core most difficult to treat people who have addiction, including heroin addiction, is are going to be people who are homeless. Those individuals won't be made better only by getting them into buprenorphine treatment. Rather, they're going to need help with finding stable housing, mm -hmm. and then they're going to need hope. Right. And what I mean by that is they're going to need someone to work very hard with them to make sure that they get proper mental health care, because many of these people have uh, coexisting mental health disorders as mm -hmm. well as their addiction. And then for those who can, they need to be brought out of their, get their addiction and their mental health treated, and then have help in re-engaging in what we would term as normal life, i.e. Right. working, finding hope, finding meaning. Those, that's, that's a heavy lift, yeah. and it's a much bigger lift than me offering buprenorphine medication-assisted treatment. Right. Makes perfect sense. Um, so I know you've done some work locally here. Uh, and I, I'm, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you've worked with, for example, the mayor's office. And if there's other physicians out there listening who are saying, what can I do at a sort of a grassroots level to help influence in my community at the most local level? What, what's a way to take the first step? Well, when I came to the University of Pennsylvania in 2007, I, of course, had no links with anyone because I came from Utah to come to a new community that I had no links or ties with. Uh, and so that might be the best kind of example. In that case, I immediately started getting involved in the home front. And what I mean by that is, is I learned about what I could do within my own community, first mm -hmm. University of Pennsylvania community, to try to improve the process of care, particularly pain care and then palliative care. Mm -hmm. I joined my local societies. Uh, Philadelphia Medical Society, Pennsylvania Medical Society, Pennsylvania Society of Anesthesiologists, and then kept raising my hand when the opportunities existed, and I actually was proactive on looking for opportunities to join. So I ended up joining the board of the Pennsylvania Society of Anesthesiologists because I reached out to the individuals, and it come to find out they did not have any, at that time, they did not have any academic pain doctors on their board of directors, so they asked me to be on the board of directors. and then I recognized that Pennsylvania did not have a prescription drug monitoring program mm -hmm. and there was actually no effort to develop one at the time. And so through the Pennsylvania Society of Anesthesiologists, we created the Pennsylvania Pain Coalition and we essentially brought together a wide group of advocacy groups to talk about the need to have a prescription drug monitoring program and advocated for that legislation. That led to me meeting with people in the House and the Senate at the state level, developing a relationship with the Secretary of Drug and Alcohol Programs, and then ultimately helping uh, behind the scenes work on good policy on developing that bill, which passed, but it took several years for it to pass. Mm -hmm. When the bill was passed, I became a member of the advisory board for that group and then subsequently became active at the state level on a number of different committees. And that came through raising my hand, offering to help 
and then following through on those commitments. Mm -hmm. And generally, the old adage that if you're not there, then you know the first part of being successful is actually being present is true. That yeah. I did not do anything that was transformative other than be present and try to advocate for reasonable policy. Mm -hmm. I have not uh, been terribly involved on the politics side, although my children are. Uh, uh, but I have been successful through Republican and Democrat uh, governments in advocating for reasonable health care related policy issues. Got it. If I'm an anesthesia resident and I'm thinking about pain uh, and I'm looking at the legislative environment and thinking, oh my gosh, maybe I should just do anesthesia or something with less sort of baggage in today's you know, uh, political discourse, how might you encourage somebody in, in that situation? Well, I don't think the political baggage that exists in pain is any different than it was before. Mm -hmm. And in fact, with innovations in information technology, electronic health record, and large data sets, we're actually at a very fun and exciting time. Mm -hmm. uh, we're doing a number of different projects that I actually find to be very exciting, looking at large data sets that are collected through our electronic health record to understand the impact of the the care decisions that we make on large populations and how we can try to do a better job. And for existence, for example, uh, there's been a signal that the combined use of opioids with benzodiazepines increase the risk of harm. We've, uh, I've been involved in some clinical trials and some, invest some QI trials that have clearly demonstrated that that harm exists. Mm -hmm. We've looked at uh, uh, the use of those medications around the time of surgery and also identified that they're uh, that that combined use is harmful. And hopefully the information that we're gaining from that effort is actually changing practice. Mm -hmm. With regard to opioids, our practice is most certainly changed based on learn, active learning from 2007 until now. And I would like to think that I'm going to continue to learn until I retire. That won't change. And so I actually don't feel threatened by the government government changes in the environment, uh, the regulatory environment, because physicians should be proactive on doing the best thing for their patients, yeah. and we should actually be part of the solution, and we shouldn't feel threatened by people who are trying to encourage us to do the right thing. Makes perfect sense. Dr. Ashburn, I appreciate your time today. In closing, I just want to have one final question. You're, you are a very, very accomplished physician, advocate on many fronts. I'm curious to know one thing that you look back on in your career and say, this is something that I'm proud of, a moment where the investment of all my time and all my energy was worth it and was impactful. It could be a patient story, it could be a policy uh, event or something like that. I think that's an excellent question. I would say actually uh, most recently, well I think that from my personal career, the most, the most beneficial thing that I've done was my decision seven years in my career to go back and get an MPH hmm. because that precipitated uh, the, my ability to effectively compete for the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellowship and my interest in active participation in health policy I think has had some impact both hmm. on my career and I would like to think that my efforts have helped improve the care that other people have had. Uh, most recently the one could see my impact on opioid policy within the state of Pennsylvania related to my advocacy for the PDMP. Mm -hmm. In hindsight, one could say that that was an easy bill to pass. 
and now very much bread and butter. At the time, there was active opposition to creating the PDMP in Pennsylvania, but my efforts on participating in that dialogue and debate allow for us to develop the the ongoing task force has developed a number of state pra clinical practice guidelines on how to try to improve the care that's being offered to folks with pain. That allowed us to write the core curriculum for all medical students in Pennsylvania and the partnership that we've had, which has been very, very productive with, with uh, Secretary of Health Rachel Levine and others on developing really sound policy related to pain and addiction. Excellent. Well, Dr. Michael Ashburn, thank you very much for joining us today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. Thank you for having me. Hey, Justin here. This may shock you to learn, but I am actually not a full-time podcaster. I also run a financial planning company called Quantify Planning, where I work closely with anesthesia and pain docs to build and implement customized financial plans. If you're interested in working with a financial planner who knows many of the ins and outs of your profession, shoot me an email or head on over to quantifyplanning.com for more information. If you're a resident or fellow, I can also offer you a free student loan analysis if you're interested, but there might be a waiting list, so check out the link over there to see. If you're interested in learning more about the topics we discussed today, head over to anesthesiasuccess.com to join our community of residents and attendings and others to ask a question or get more free resources. If and only if you like this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. Thank you very much for listening to the Anesthesia Success Podcast.